0: Broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation here in Bullock Beck or Brunswick East. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is Swinburne Academic for Cinema and Screen Studies, Dr. Andrew Lynch. Hey, hey Andy.
1: Hey. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me back.
0: <laughs> it's lovely having you back. Uh, we're talking about TV again tonight. Um, so I had to have you on, really. Um, and making her primal screen debut. You. It is author and scholar Dr. Tara Lomax. Welcome to Primal Screen, Tyra.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And on tonight's show, we're talking about superheroes on screen. We're gonna revisit the groundbreaking TV series Clever Man from 2016, which was created by Ryan Griffin and starred. Hunter Page Lachard, uh, Deborah Mailman, and Uncle Jack Charles, among many, many others. And later we're going to review Taika ITD's million-dollar love letter to 80s glam rock disco and hammer throwing. It's Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, and and uh, Tara and Andy, I'm really glad to have you both joining me tonight because you've both written and lectured a lot about the superhero genre. So before we're going to tuck into these reviews... Um, what are come kind of the, some of the defining characteristics of the superhero genre? I'm guessing a cape should be involved.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the costume is a really big part of the superhero genre, of course. Um, Andy, you've, you've written a little bit about the costume and how it can be used as a sort of device for communicating or subverting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, there's a few, but every you know, scholarly or popular definition of the superhero for however long has included uh, the costume. You know, that's what distinguished superheroes from kind of previous historical kind of heroic figures like a, a Zorro or a detective or these kind of <laughs> characters who've been around for so long. Um, likewise, you know, superpowers, yeah. uh, you know, always, uh, so, you know, human, human beings that can do something, you know, extraordinary, whether that be, you know, climb up a wall like a spider or zip around or, you know, leap, was it? Tall buildings in a single bound.
2: Yeah. And I think a little bit of that is imp- what's important with the, uh, power is the origin story. Yeah. We always oh, get the, the narrative trope of the origin story, um, and we often see uh, the important kind of first movie is the origin story of the first adaptation or the, you know, the origin in a, um, a reboot in a comic series. Um, and then you have the seriality that extends from that as well. And that's often a narrative a device that's associated with the superhero genre. And the reboot as well. Mm. Um, so the idea of uh, rebooting that continuity. So there are some of the uh, narrative uh, mm. conventions. Um, and from the powers, though, we also then have themes. Mm. We have the sort of themes of, obviously, with Spider-Man, we have responsibility. is <laughs> yeah, a really big it's a one. Big one. You know. The duty. <laughs> um, but we also have things like um, what it means to power the body. You know, Mm. so ability and disability really can be associated with the superhero genre as well. Um, Human frailty versus, um, you know, yeah, human powers. And those kinds of dynamics uh, are really interesting themes that I think really comes through with the superhero genre. Um, And I think that we're really seeing that explored in interesting ways Mm. in – if it's Marvel, um, we might, you know, talk about that in relation to a Clever Man, DC. Um, we sort of see those frailties and insecurities mm. um, of the body associated. So there's sort of some really inter- interesting things happening. I think the responsibility piece is really important. Yeah. And that's, yeah, in relation to power, ideology, political power and responsibility.
1: Superheroes are evergreen, right? In terms of you know, we can make a superhero <laughs> initially, obviously comic books, later serials mm. that would kind of play in play in cinemas, kind of short serialized ongoing stories, and of course then superhero films. You know, I guess most famously the Christopher Reeve Superman, but as you say, endless reboots and kind of retellings of those iconic mm. characters, but you know, to suit the, the the themes or the, you know, societal ills or concerns or hopes or dreams of, of the era in which they're made.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is really interesting about the superhero genre is how it reflects the zeitgeist. Mm. And, I mean, that could work in in two different ways. It can be both, you know, it is mainstream. So we are talking about very much a modern type of mythology. Mm. It's modern myth-making. That's why it's really, um, you know, Coming in its stride at the moment. Mm. Um, so it can both influence culture, but it can also reflect. Mm. So and there's that dynamic and that push and pull there that I think yeah. it's really important to be aware of that, yeah, it's, it's, it's in the main, but, you know, we its audience as well. Yeah, yeah. And so with the MCU, it's a really important um, aspect is that audience, the listening to the audience you know what do yeah. they want to see through representation, through stories.
0: It actually speaks to the longevity of the genre as well. Like I, and, and the fact, like you were saying, Andy, it's so adaptable to mm-hmm. the zeitgeist and and that sort of sense of of it being responsive to cultural political shifts. I it's interesting hearing you both talk about the superhero genre in this way because I think a lot of the time. You know, spectators assume that it to be this kind of naff, sort of popcorn um, light entertainment. Mm. And I suppose, you know, you've both spent um, a lot of time researching these these genres, so you're able to find these depths to it. And, and sometimes there's that sense of... And comic, comic books often are faced with the same criticism, but they're also able, through this kind of almost like pulpy approach, um, deal with some really um, tough discussions and political issues, and we're going to touch upon some of those later, I think, especially in our discussion of Clever Man. And Clever Man's an interesting one, and we'll touch upon that later. I don't want to unpack too much. Um, but with the formal, you are talking before about how these these the genre is often set up with the origin and then going into all the different... Um, specific issues with, like, the superpower. Is this coming from – is it following that same format that was developed in comic books or did the films come first? Is it comic books really started with this genre? Am I right?
2: Yeah. So it it extends from comic books primarily, American comic book Mm. tradition. But even before that, um, it comes from the literary traditions of um, whether it was um, uh, literary serials – um, but also radio serials. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So, yeah, okay, that's, that's good, very interesting. A nice, <laughs> like, um, yeah, so it does have a, an earlier tradition. And so it, it is very um, compatible with different types of serial storytelling across different media. Um, but it has its sort of most formalised expression in the American comic book mm. um, boom, you know, from the from the 30s. And that's more your traditional costumed superhero yeah right? gotcha your super your superman and, and your batman yeah etc um but earlier than that um we can also chart a connection to the old west vigilantes the masked vigilantes oh, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Zorro earlier um and so there are connections to between the west the tropes of the western genre yeah uh, and the superhero genre yeah so we can sort of see a lineage of some of those conventions. But also, the, the superhero genre, um, and I think this will become relevant too when we talk about Clever Man, um, the superhero genre is very American. Yes, right. Yes. It's very <laughs> born from American individualism and exceptionalism. Mm. So it is really interesting to see then what happens when we try and put that in Australian context. And
0: the, yeah. yeah, and our two examples are by non-Americans. Absolutely. So I think it's going to be a good chat tonight. Um, as many listeners know, NADOC Week finished up yesterday, and the week is a celebration of the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, Film and television has the potential to be such a powerful platform in spotlighting Indigenous stories, experiences and voices. And and one of the key ways that we can decolonise the screen and, and kind of the industry more generally is through representation both on screen and behind the camera. Um, And for our first review of tonight, this is actually, um, I think, a really fantastic example of that in play. It's a TV series that I actually first saw on the silver screen, (laughs) hack me, um, and then later on the small And I think that speaks to some of the significance that this show has. I am, of course, talking about Clever Man, which was created by Ryan Griffin and stars Hunter Page Lashard, Rob Collins, Tasma Walton, Deborah Mailman, and Uncle Jack Charles. And here is a short clip. Phew.
1: What do you got in the bag? Something dead in there. Take it. Go on. Father would want you to help this. Hey, he it's not a toy. So sure, Jimmy, whatever. Look at me. You're a man now, son. You need to start acting like one.
0: Um, so yeah, we're talking about Clever Man tonight and
2: Tare, did you want to just start up with what your article? Yeah, sure. So we're talking about Clever Man and uh, my article in Senses of Cinema and um, I was provoked to write the article um, after I read a review about Clever Man that said uh, it was too busy uh, building a world to tell a story and I I found that such a fascinating idea um, because it reflects two really interesting things that that it's happening with narrative at the moment. And we often put a lot of emphasis on character and plot and story Mm. and setting is seen as something that, yeah, sure. We furnish, we furnish a setting. We have a setting, we have a space, we have a background. Um, but in sort of narratology and theories of, uh, of storytelling a setting is not given as much emphasis and we don't put as much uh, privileging of how important setting is and so in a in a world of franchise filmmaking and franchising is a pr- primary expertise I have um world building is is really important mm. um and the idea that a world is enriched with life and and is a storytelling vehicle is really important but for clever man especially I I find it really important because, um, land and, um, you know, yeah, the, the, land is so important to indigenous culture. And so I, this, this review that said it's too busy build, uh, building a world to tell a story. I said, no, the, the world is the, point. the story.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. The world is the story. Yeah.
2: Um, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's implicated in, you know, so much history yeah. and struggle.
0: Yeah. um, I'm sorry to the listeners. We did have a bit of a technical issue there where I think we cut out for a fair bit there. Um, I just noticed on our levels that it wasn't quite going through. Um, So if you've just tuned in and you're curious about exactly what Cleverman is about, I suppose most people would have been familiar with this TV series. It did come out back in 2016. It was on ABC iview. Um, It is now available on Stan, which is really exciting. I'm glad that it still has some sort of life on there. Um, But, yeah, the basic premise, I I feel like it was really popular at the time is is kind of this world between the hairies who are these like hairy supernatural people and and kind of just modern day this dystopian um modern day dystopia um it's really fascinating kind of setup I remember watching it and feeling so thrilled by um the setup and I I think there's something really energetic it has an amazingly 80 percent indigenous cast Mm. and crew which is unheard of and I think it's really important to understand that this hasn't occurred in a vacuum, that there is a long history of um, money being put into Indigenous communities, particularly in film and television, um, first in radio, but then uh, kind of extending out. And that happened in like the 80s. And then we're seeing, particularly in the early 2000s, we finally saw the fruits of a lot of that labour, of people being trained up in community and therefore being able to tell those stories. Um, Clever Man's really curious, and you touch upon this in your article, Tara, of um, the way in which it actually goes starts as a TV series, and then it, comes, it came out as a, a
2: comic book recently. Yeah, oh, kind of recently. So the first issue of the comic book was published by Gestalt Publishing, this Gestalt Comics, um, it's a WA indie uh, Australian comic book publisher, and the first issue coincided with the second season of Clever Man. And... The second issue had a bit of a delay, if I remember correctly, and it came out a bit after the second season, but the comic book, uh, it doesn't actually feature Cohen, the clever man in it, yeah. um, but it has this beautiful epilogue that explains that the clever man, you know, occupies a space between, you know, the real and the dreaming, mm. this conduit. Yeah. Between, and so I I I saw that, and I looked at the idea of betweenness as this really beautiful kind of uh, concept for exploring um, how clever man uh, tells a story across media, uh, across uh, like episodes, across spaces, um, and really unpacks that in betweenness, the Mm. interstices between, um, because in many ways that's it's about activating that uh, in-betweenness to find a way to, you know, reconcile.
0: Yes, I absolutely love that you talk about in-betweenness and liminality because that's exactly um, my my analysis of the film and um, the TV series when I got to write about it was the fact that we have this kind of fantastic temporality to this mm. and we have that in actually a lot of superhero genres, really in this superhero genre, you know, this sense of another time and place and I think when we're talking particularly about the trauma of Australia's past and present really... Um, there's this real disruption of time and place. And so I love that the genre lends itself in this formal way to the content of the TV series. And Ryan Griffin is so wonderfully outspoken on Twitter. I absolutely love following him. He's wonderful. I remember him coming out against Bill Leak, who's a cartoonist. Um, I don't think he's working anymore, but he had a terribly racist... Um, uh, cartoon that was published, amazing. I can't believe this got published, about Aboriginal dads and a really derogatory comment about Aboriginal d- dads. And Ryan Griffin started the hashtag Aboriginal dads and was just showing pictures of of, you know, dads with their kids to say, actually, this is what Aboriginal dads look like. And I, I think that that lends itself so well. And you see that surface in Clever Man. And you see that with the, we've, we played some Briggs before with AV Original. He's great as well. He's like fantastically outspoken about this. Yeah, I was pretty
1: stoked also to see Briggs pop up as a character yeah. within the Cleverman universe. <laughs> in a uh,
0: boxing ring, no less. <laughs> yeah He does
1: some pretty awesome wrestling moves in his oh, uh, yeah, opening yeah, totally. appearance. I think there's something interesting you, you say about that. And this is some, although it was widely a really, I guess, critically appreciated series, because yeah, it did um,
0: play, it did play actually at film festivals absolutely. and at Acme before the silver, um, the small screen, which absolutely. I think is and, interesting.
1: And U.S. critics quite liked it. It's Sundance mm. TV, the U.S. Yep. network, was involved in its in its production as well. But I think there's something interesting you say about this confusion about whether you know building a world and is is something you know maybe that something that. Uh, critics weren't expecting Yes, and it's because i I guess as we say the superhero genre is so tied around an individual a single person as you say uh you know the the legacy of the western hero the outsider who comes into community to save community yes and clever man yes it is a a superhero show and it was built as such but superhero as a genre is often hybridized mixed with other things Mm. you know horror in this case sci-fi we Mm. have this kind of as, as you say, Tari, it, it's it's kind of Sydney. It's like a oh. non-specific <laughs> Australian city, but it's a it's a near future, and it's yes. it's. I think it was maybe confusing to some critics that this was a show that is about. You know Cohen, the clever man who is nominally you know the first indigenous superhero on TV and that was very very pushed in the marketing, but it is about this this wider cast of characters and and this world, and that 's as much I guess the appeal and the focus of the show as any one individual hero, which is yes. maybe not what people necessarily expect from the superhero genre
0: yes, absolutely. I think it 's exactly the fact that this this TV series. It's Griffin, Griffin had such a clear idea for what he wanted to, mm. to create. He, he he talked about the fact that his son, he wanted his son to have um, a black, black superhero and a black BLAK, you know, specifically. And it felt so fresh. I remember sitting there in the Acme Theatre watching it and just feeling like, really... Uh, energized by the fact that I hadn't actually seen this on screen mm-hmm. before and I think the hybridization that you talk about Andy and this kind of world building that you touch upon Kara Atara is so is so central to it and it creates this wonderful um, conversation between what they're trying to communicate in the genre but also just in the content itself and the narrative I yeah, I found it really powerful TV series. I was sad that it went, so it's gone to a season, a second season, and there's not thir, the third season just hasn't really happened, has it? No. Um,
1: we're we're, we're uh, spoiler-free here, aren't we? <laughs> we Let, are. Let's say it, can, it concludes on a final note. It's not like, you know, it's really the saddest mm. thing ever is your favourite show getting cancelled yeah. you know, without getting the chance to wrap up. And they, they yeah. did actively wrap up the show. It is a contained, yeah. you know, 12 hours of television. Yeah.
2: I do believe, though, that uh, Hunter Page uh, Lachard has been putting up a bit of a campaign on Twitter to have that, you know, bring it back. Yeah. Um, and so it should, because yeah. uh, I think that it's, it's interesting to note that the fact that it hasn't continued uh, is really indicative of the fact that I think we have, in, a, in the Australian screen industry, um, we don't yet have a full embrace of this kind of world-building mm. approach, and so I, I describe *Clever Man* as a modest transmedia. Mm. So it's um, what do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is so transmedia storytelling refers to the the organized dispersal of a story across multiple media. Mm-hmm. And usually, though, we expect to have you know traditionally we think of it as three or more uh, media. But you know, with *Clever Man*, we have. Two media, we have the TV series and the comic. But I would argue that we have a third with the oral storytelling traditions of Indigenous mm, people. Yeah. And in, in a way, that's it's an adaptation of
0: yes. those oral traditions. Yes, and it very much is. And I think yeah. it's important to note that they do use a lot
2: of um, Indigenous language throughout the TV series. What's also really interesting too is the dialogue that happened during development between um, Elders and um, and 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 Ryan Griffin. Yeah, we're let's talk into that. Yeah, yeah, so he actually has spoken a bit about having to like getting permission and speaking to the yeah. elders and having to kind of sell it to them. And um, I have read that uh, it was sold to them by, imagine we could have our culture as well known as Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> um, so what we're really think, yeah. looking at here then is it, not so much the superhero genre as an American. You know, Western form, but really because of its capacity to speak to the masses. Yes, you yes. Know, so, and that is is power for a, a, a culture who, you know, hasn't been doesn't get to be seen. So mm. uh, that um uh, dialogue that has occurred between um you know having to negotiate creating uh, stories that suit the genre, mm. and then having to you know. Negotiate that with tradition, and yes. you know what's appropriate culturally yes. is one aspect that is is a really kind of sort of beautiful uh, marrying yeah. happening. But I think also with um, with the point I was sort of uh, leading into earlier about Australian um, storytelling is th- this sort of form of franchise filmmaking. It doesn't always have to be blockbusters. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't always yeah. have to be multi-million, billion-dollar, uh, big branded things. It doesn't we'll have to, to be we'll Marvel. We'll get to that later. It doesn't have to be Marvel. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have <laughs> to be to say, Star Wars. And that
1: superheroes time. don't have to be Marvel. <laughs> That's There exactly is superheroes right. beyond yeah. The comic book page beyond DC beyond Marvel I
0: think yeah. that's exactly though what Griffin is trying to get mm. out yep. that we can claim it and reclaim it and I, I when I mentioned decolonization of the screen I think this is exactly what I had in mind and I, I I know that you know there's some you know critics who don't love clever man I I think that there's so much to it and I really hope that um, if there's not more TV series of this I hope there's some more comic books I highly recommend checking it out it is currently available to stream on on you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform on tonight's show, we're talking all about superheroes on screen. Uh, we opened with a real blast from the past, 2016's Clever Man. And now it is time for a, for a film which you probably guessed by that wonderful 80s track. It is Taika Waititi's uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, before we get into Thor, though, uh, Andy, can you give us a bit of a recap? I think most people are familiar with Waititi's filmography, but talk us through it.
1: Yeah, I imagine Taika Waititi is probably one of the the better-known creatives coming out of New Zealand nowadays. Has he usurped even the great Peter Jackson? Perhaps. (laughs) Maybe. So Taika Waititi, as you might imagine, is a New Zealand uh, director largely, but also writer and occasional actor as well. Uh, He does star, or not star, but he's usually supporting roles in many of his films. Um, So he's active in the late 90s New Zealand comedy scene as a member of the five-man comedy troupe So You're a Man, with (laughs) Brett McKenzie and Jermaine Clement, who's some people might remember as Brett and Jermaine from... I think it's
0: pronounced Brit.
1: Yeah, Brit, <laughs> <We do the, laughs> if we do the accent, uh, from the wonderful Flight of the Concords, Um, which YTT also directed a number of episodes. Uh, so he's gone on to do uh, a whole bunch of uh, TV directing but also feature films, including... Uh, his his short, which got him an Academy Award nomination, Two Cars, One Night, which is great if you can track it down on YouTube. Uh, but then some sort of romantic comedies, Eagle vs. Shark in yeah. 2007, The Wonderful Boy, which he also kind of co-stars in from 2010, the uh, vampire... I was going to say, we can. Yeah. You're looking at me.
2: M- yeah. Mockumentary.
1: Mockumentary. Mockumentary. I suppose. We say, yeah. uh, what We Do in the Shadows, which has a fantastic uh, spin off TV yeah. series that he also directed an episode of. Uh, he, of course, then did uh, Hunt for the Wilder People in 2016, the, you know, come, I guess he loves the coming of age, but with uh, the wonderful <laughs> Sam Neill. Um, and then, of course, he jumped into the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with Thor Ragnarok in 2017, which I think we can fairly say revitalized the Thor <laughs> character. So, Literally, He's yeah. of course the god of thunder and part of the Avengers team. Uh and Chris Hemsworth, who by all accounts was getting a bit tired of playing Thor, was so excited.
2: <laughs> I think he'd like argue with you on that
1: one. Oh, okay. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Look, I think in his performance Ty yeah. got, got a new version of Thor. Totally. For
2: him. Or at least reframed yeah. Thor.
1: Absolutely. He brought
2: a new dimension to it. Yeah. Him, but I yeah. think Chris. Knows what he like wanted from it. <laughs>
1: sure, yeah, he's certainly more a, ast- a bank st- check. Thor's gotten a little bit more Australian than yeah, we've yeah. Uh, than we've seen Thor initially. Um, he had uh, his very, we'll say, uh, slightly controversial, interesting Jojo Rabbit in 2019, yes. uh, in which he played a little boy's imaginary version of uh, Adolf Hitler um, in a move that some people found, uh, you know, found somewhat difficult, but was certainly ambitious. Um, and now he's, of course, back with Thor Love and Thunder, the, yeah. the highly anticipated uh, sequel to Thor Ragnarok. Yeah,
0: let's play a clip of that now.
1: Kids, get a popcorn now.
2: Oh, spoke too soon, Jane.
0: <laughs> That's a bit of a spoiler, but it's in the trailer, so it's okay. I'd get this but twists uh, and turns. Um, so Tara, tell
2: yeah. us about Thor: Love and Thunder. Thor: Love and Thunder. It is the 29th uh, feature uh, film in the Marvel Cinematic is it really? Universe. Really? Yes, oh my it is. god! <laughs> it is the sixth uh, feature instalment in the fourth phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> And the fourth Thor, in, a solo Thor installment. So fourth Thor—that's a—that's a real the, the mouthful. <laughs> Thor. Yeah, bit, I, I realised that as I was saying. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't think that one. Through. And Asgardian <laughs> yes, tongue twister yes. there. So look, when um, we the last time we see Thor, uh, played by Chris Hemsworth, uh, is at the end of Avengers Endgame in 2019. Now Thor, Thor's been through a lot. He's had a, a lot of traumatic things happen to him.
1: <laughs> he lost his dad. He lost
2: his father. He lost, he lost his, his mother. He lost his brother many times. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he had uh, the break breakup with his first love, Dr. Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman. Uh, that happens somewhere we know between um, uh, Thor Dark World and Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Um and he um, loses a bunch of friends.
1: He lost an eye?
2: He lost an eye. <laughs> he got it back though, didn't he? It's a glass eye. Okay, yeah. It's a blast oh. eye. Um, he lost Milner, his magical hammer, um, to his sister, Hela, Uh That was back in, R- in Ragnarok. That was played by Kate Blanchett. Yes, and, of course. And um, he loses his, his Asgard, his home. Um, many of its peoples, and his peoples become displaced. This guy's been through a bit. Um, so, um, at the end of Endgame, also he, he fails to defeat Thanos. So, you know, there's a lot, lot rested on this guy's very The, the big
1: Marvel villain of the yeah, Avengers franchise. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, right. Franchise. You know, he,
2: he fails to take off his head when he should have. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot resting on these very big arms. Mm. <laughs> um, so at the end of, um, Endgame, he, um, he entrusts uh, new Asgard because its peoples has, have been displaced. So they've taken up a new home um, in, in, in America. Oh, no, sorry, in Northern uh, Europe,
1: right? It looks remarkably like Wellington, but yes, I um, think it's meant to be Northern Europe.
2: <laughs> and so, so new, new Asgard is, um, he, he entrusts new Asgard to Valkyrie, um, played by Tessa Thompson.
0: Oh, she's wonderful in this. <laughs> he becomes
2: King Valkyrie. Yes. And then he goes off with the Guardians of the Galaxy to find himself. So when we meet him in Thor, Love and Thunder, he's still struggling with this. Yeah. Um, he's really, he hasn't quite, he hasn't quite got there. And so, um, you know, he's, there's still soul searching. He's, you know, going through space adventures and, um, like all heroes, what they really need is a villain to give them some conflict. <laughs>
0: so the a villain, villain they get, I actually did not recognise Christian, Christian Bale, Bale until so... my partner was like, that's Christian Bale. I was like, no, surely not.
1: He's in skinny Christian Bale mode <laughs> a la The Machinist totally. back in the day.
0: He it is. He remind me a lot of The Machinist. Mm. Specific, yeah. didn't it? Well, so... he looks a bit like Voldemort. I heard him described, and maybe by Tyker himself, as Voldemort with the nose and I think that's very accurate. <laughs> Who, you know, was played by Ray Fiennes and so we've got Christian Bale and Another very kind of, like, considered cinema actor. Mm
2: I thought it was really interesting casting for this. Yeah, so just to add to that, though, in the comic, he does look like Voldemort. Oh, does And so there was a concerted decision, apparently, to change his look (laughs) a little bit, not to confuse with Um, Voldemort. He's a pretty scary villain as well. He is. He has
1: an iconic villain name. What is it, Tara? Gore the God Butcher.
2: The God Butcher. <laughs> so um, Gore is an, unspecifi- is an unspecified alien race and he's had a crisis of faith. Mm. When he f- first sees a real religious man, he's had a crisis of faith. Not because he finds out that gods don't exist, but because they do exist. And they're not very nice. No. Right.
0: I thought that was very, I thought that really tapped into some of the apathy, I think, that has been um, brewing <laughs> in modern times for quite some time, you know. like They I say
1: never meet your that, heroes, right? You, and that
2: <laughs> yeah. is a theme running through this community, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so he um, gains possession of a sword called the Necro Sword. Can really uh, assume that there is—it's not happy roses, but this sword. <laughs> it's a dark and dangerous sword that can kill gods. Yeah. So he uh, goes off to get revenge uh, on gods, and then it's it's Thor's turn. Um, Thor comes back. He departs from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Comes back to New Asgard and finds out there's another Thor.
0: Yes, and I love this. And this kind of touches a little bit around costuming that you mentioned before, Andy, when we're defining the superhero genre. A big part of it is costuming. We see a wonderful doubling here. I did hear in an interview with Taika that he was like, oh, you know, I just thought it'd be exciting for people to see what a female Thor might look like. Mm -hmm. We have, of course, Natalie Portman as um, Jane Foster. Doctor Doctor. Jane Jane Foster. Foster. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of doctors in the room, so I have to make sure, you know, Always <laughs> never <laughs> drop that title. Um, you've got, yeah, Jane Foster as this wonderful
2: counterpart to Thor.
1: She's the mighty Thor, is that She's right? She's the
2: mighty Thor, and she has Milner. Yes, yes, an important
0: important reclaiming there um, and repositioning of power. Um, I feel like there's been, oh, I looked at the reviews. Look, the reviews for Thor, Love and Thunder, haven't been very kind. Very mixed. Very mixed, yeah. That would be the nicest way to put it. (laughs) Um, I had tremendous fun watching this. I I actually really loved Thor Ragnarok, so I, pretty, mm. I suppose I was always going to be enjoying this. I do think there's, uh, Taika's films often do seem to focus in on a sort of crisis of masculinity. And mm. I do think that Thor, particularly as he's represented in this film, is very much having a crisis and very much failing and and kind of like this false bravado, which, again, you see see in Boy. So it feels very much like a Tiger Mm. film, Um, maybe not so much of a Marvel film. It's got all the elements there. I, I kind of loved the coupling, um, not as a Marvel officiando, but just I enjoyed that. Tara, you have a bloody PhD in franchising. How do you feel like this fits in with the Marvel Universe?
2: Um, I think that it's a really interesting question because, uh, so as I said, it's the uh, sixth movie in the fourth phase. So we've had three phases in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and those first three phases culminated in Avengers Endgame as this sort of really big event moment. Mm. And We
1: talked about story worlds and this was a, a world-changing is- event. It was a,
2: yeah, it was a really big, really big event, and a really big event uh, in this as a cinema experience mm. as well. And I think in a post Endgame MCU, audiences are struggling to find their place. Mm. And I think that for one, what I'm seeing is audiences sort of wanting to wanting to re claim or get back to what it was like watching Endgame. Mm. They want another Endgame. Mm. We're never going to get another Endgame, guys. We might in another maybe <laughs> the 15 years. clue in the title. <laughs> maybe in another 15 years we yeah. might get to another culminative point. But um, it also, you know, being 2019, pre-COVID, it, yeah. it's, there's a, something special about well, that, I think, yeah. historically.
0: And I think there's, there's a certain amount of comfort in this film in it not being particularly difficult or challenging in a lot of ways. And I, I know that that was a conscious decision from from them <laughs> saying, oh. maybe this is what we need. We've gone through, well, we're, it's an ongoing pandemic, but it's been like two and a bit years. Um, did you, like, What were your thoughts on this, Andy? Were you kind of hyped to see Thor?
1: I couldn't have been more hyped. I yeah. think Thor Ragnarok, and I'm a big superhero fan of of all stripes, superhero TV, comics, films. Um, but, yeah, I felt uh, Thor Ragnarok felt almost like the perfect com- combination of You know, the MCU at its best, Mm. big blockbuster storytelling, bringing in all these kind of threads I'd seen from previous MCU films with that really fresh take of Tiger, particularly the blending of kind of pathos, like real kind of tragedy, especially these kind of damaged protagonists that he loves Mm. to have in these films. And at the same time, it was absolutely hilarious. Mm. Yeah,
0: I I love, Tara, that you touched upon it. You started our discussion about superhero films, talking a little bit about how the question of ability and disability Mm. surfaces in superhero genre. And this film does touch upon that. There is a failing body in different ways that surfaces for many of the characters uh, and actually most of the characters. And it's really interesting that it taps into these these broader, more complex narratives, but then has this ridiculous Hades spin to it and and so much um, humour in this film. Um, I know some people didn't love it as much as Ragnarok, but I, I think there's a lot to, to enjoy in this.
1: I think that's where I had a, a tiny bit, and I had a great time. I absolutely said, if you want Thor, you know, Hemsworth, laughs, action like this will deliver. Yeah. If you love Taika Waititi films, mm-hmm. this will deliver, you know, again and again. But I think that is the difficulty is, and I think, I, you know, I think I enjoyed Jojo Rabbit a lot more than a lot of people did. And I think it, I thought it juggled the really kind of the the tragic and the real world mm. with the humour effectively, but not everyone felt that way. Yeah. I think this is... Falling into that same difficulty, mm. it's even wackier and funnier in some ways than Thor Ragnarok was. Mm. But at the same time, the dark parts are, you know, even darker, or, or maybe the yes. the more closer to you home. Know,
0: that's a re- and that is a real uh, trademark of New Zealand cinema mm. and Australian cinema. Definitely. So we have these very often quite bleak social issues that are brought up in such a way, um, but com- especially in New Zealand cinema, I think brought up in and in with a really comic twist to it. In Australian cinema. Sometimes it leans more towards the horror genre mm-hmm, or the mm-hmm. true crime genre. Mm. Um, but I really love Waititi's work for exactly that reason, that he's able to touch upon these and have this lightness to them. And it's kind of
2: jarring sometimes, actually. I mean, a lot of people have spoken about the tone. The tonality is a mm. very mixed tone in this movie. But that is very Tika. Yes, mm. precisely. i like, it's tiger. <laughs> but yeah. interestingly is I've read a lot of um, American reviews that have talked about how their cinema was silent and didn't get any of the Comedy, and I'm like, I've seen it twice. I saw it twice in a, in a few days. Yeah, and on both occasions, the cinema was was hysterical. Mm, yeah, s- same oh, experience I'm, to so me. I wonder if yeah. there's something about the the sort type of, bitter, of humor. the type of humour. Yeah. Is it the castle syndrome? Is it the you know <laughs> not getting the humour right? I think it might play into it
0: because I think it's a very, um, yeah, it's a very antipodean humour, mm-hmm. and I, I and this is type of unrestrained by all yeah. accounts. And yeah. that's an important. That's another criticism that's come up: is that people who have preferred uh, Ragnarok, he did have free reign with with Love and Thunder, and that criticism of like maybe if he had someone reining him in, it would have been a tighter film. I actually think they miss the point because the messiness is part of the joy of this. I but think
2: I will say though, uh, I don't think he would have had free reign in the sense of. Like there's Kevin Feige, who's the producer, like Mm. the really head honcho of Marvel. Mm. And so, you know, Taika has talked about the process and said, look, I, I could write this freely, but, you know, I did still have to get some notes yeah, on, of course. on what I'm doing. And I think know. when, whenever – and, Tara, I'm sure you can speak to this,
0: but, like, when, you're, when your film is positioned within a much broader franchise yeah. and it's not just on the screen, it's the comics, it's everything else, you, there's a huge amount of responsibility. Yeah. And any film director who takes on a franchise has mm. the weight of that and also the weight of a very outspoken fandom. Fan base. That's fan base, right. yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> <laughs> something
2: that – look, there's something that we're, we are seeing, though, is – like. Uh, The MCU, Marvel Studios, uh, they do bring in directors Mm. for differentiation. A lot of Mm. people talk about Marvel being Um, same-same. Audiences who love the MCU, like MCU literate audience, Mm. that I would call call them, um, we don't see a cookie cutter. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't go to movies, like 29 movies, (laughs) and, and see the same thing. Like we don't, there's something different about each of these movies. They do something different and a real audience. And so we do see that, that sort of discord between the the MCU literate audience and then maybe the audience who don't watch every movie and they're Mm -hmm. not engaging with it in the same way. Um, But directors auteurs, that kind of vision is one of the strategies that is brought in for differentiation. And Taika is one of the one, one of the directors who's shown that it is possible to do what you need to do for the MCU and what the needs of the franchise and at the same time do something a little bit different and work within that. Yeah. So that ability to work within the constraints is a type of uh, approach to directing that not all the authors or directors are equipped for. Yeah, And some have the skill set for it. Um, something though I find interesting with uh, Thor, Love and Thunder is the uh, presence of children. And I <laughs> yeah. know if you all know that... Um, all the, the children in this movie were actually the, the 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 children of the cast and crew. Oh really? Oh, yeah. So, well, that makes it easier. Uh, <laughs> all of Chris's oh, Chris, you know, first name basis. Yeah. yeah. Chris. <laughs> um, uh, Chris all his of his kids? children, yeah. uh, Natalie Portman's children, Tyka's children, um, d- the producers' children. So it was a bit of a family affair. Oh, right. Um And that allowed them to have a family vibe on set. Oh, that's well. really nice. It's also like a nice little, I yeah. Think. And it was
1: shot during the several <laughs> restrictions the of COVID, yes. so and, and
2: while, yeah. while Sydney was considered a haven. And,
0: <laughs> and we should touch upon the fact there is a lot of cameos in this, and it's interesting the the cameos he's able to get from, um, you know, we've got Matt Damon, Neil. Um, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, a very there's Um Apparently, largely that was who was available nearby with all these yeah, lockdowns. maybe so who needed
2: impressive. a who needed
0: to Sydney <laughs> for a little <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> um, But I think we can all agree that everyone should check it out at least at the cinemas. Thor: yeah. Love and Thunder. It's playing at all major and independent cinemas. On tonight's show, we talked about superheroes on screen. We revisited the 2016 TV series Clever Man, created by Ryan Griffin. Clever Man is currently streaming. streaming on Stan, and later we, well just now actually, we reviewed Taika Waititi's Thor, Love and Thunder, which is now playing at all major and independent cinemas. Before we wrap up, um, Andy and Tara, can I get a quick last-minute recommendation of what superhero film or TV series to check out?
1: Well, as we said, superheroes aren't just on the big screen of the mm. comics. They're on the TV screen at the moment. My current recommendation is Amazon Prime Video's The Boys, mm. which has been a huge success for them. Stars a couple of New Zealanders, the wonderful Carl Urban and Anthony Starr. Um, and this is pretty much what if, you know, superheroes weren't just difficult or challenging or, you know, under the weight of responsibility, but were downright evil and in fact <laughs> need to be assassinated by a rogue group of mercenaries. As silly as that sounds, the show actually has a lot of heart and I'm so excited for it. It's become really one of my favourite shows on the air at the moment.
2: Okay, wonderful. And My recommendation is Disney Plus's The Biz Marvel, uh, which is a, another MCU uh, output. Um, it is the beautiful story of a... Uh, Pakistani uh, Kamala Khan, who um, finds out she has pow- she has powers. I'm not going to tell you how, <laughs> um, but we get a, a beautiful exploration of her culture and her religion, her family. Mm. And it's a real uh, and a real nice different aspect of the MCU okay. as well. So I highly recommended. Disney and what's Plus. Ms. Mar- oh his Plus. Disney okay. Plus.
0: Wonderful. Um, a big thank you to my special guest reviewers for tonight, Dr. Tara Lomax and Dr. Andy Lynch.